Well, we're working through the Westminster Confession, and we come to a really big chapter. Chapter 8 is on Christ the Mediator. And I'm going to break it up because paragraph 1 is a big one, and paragraph 2 is another big one, and I probably have to do them faster than I want to. There's a lot of paragraphs. I'm just going to do paragraph 1 tonight. So let's look at this, paragraph 1. It's very interesting that the Westminster Divines, they're always thinking very carefully, and they're, and they're talking about this. There's, the, the Westminster Assembly was not trying to determine what the doctrine was, but how to present it and how to organize it. And they, when it comes to Christ in his office of mediator, they wanted to start with the appointment of God. What was the design of God the Father for the mediatorial office of his son. And, and then paragraph two is going to start looking at his natures. And we have this great statement that it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed, and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Amen. All right, let's look at the first statement there. Uh, that God appointed his son. Now, first of all, what's a mediator? Well, we, we know this in, in the workplace, that you have two parties who can't agree, and a mediator is, is, is brought in, maybe it's in marriages sometimes too, to work it out and to bring the two of them together. And so you have two parties who are at odds with one another, who are at enmity, who are at variance with one another, and the mediator has the, the, the office of reconciling them. Now, what the confession is saying that in eternity past, God the Father appointed God the Son to be that mediator. And this is going to fall under the rubric of the theological term we're going to use is the covenant of redemption. Now, there's a lot of covenants in the Bible, but there's three macro ones. Uh, we are saved under the covenant of grace, which God brought into history with Abraham and Abraham believed the parties of the covenant of grace were God and sinners, God offering that they would be receive forgiveness and eternal life on condition of faith in a mediator, and the curse is eternal death for those who will not believe. That's the covenant of grace, sometimes called the gospel. Before that was the covenant of works. We looked at that, whereby man fell, God's covenant of, of obedience in the garden. But we also speak of the covenant of redemption, and the Westminster Confession is very strong on this, that there is a covenant arrangement between the members of the Godhead, of the Trinity, that took place in eternity past. And so the parties are primarily God the Father and God the Son, although we would not want to exclude the Holy Spirit from that. And I have some verses here that at point to the evidence that there is a pre-temporal arrangement. The point of which is, is the result of this is that Jesus receives an appointment and an assignment. You think of Hebrews 13, 20. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. 
And you have a lot of language in the New Testament. The lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Well, he was slain around 30 AD. No, no, but they're saying is there was a covenant determination for all the acts of our redemption that took place. And here it's called the, 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 the eternal covenant. You wouldn't call the covenant of grace an eternal covenant. It's in time. The, co- the eternal covenant, we call, the, the, the divines called it the covenant of redemption. The covenantal arrangement between God the Father and Son with the Spirit for our salvation. L- listen to 1 Peter 1, 18 to 20. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I have that twice. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now that's not a statement about Jesus' eternal preexistence. But that he was known, he was foreknown in this saving work from the foundation of the world, but then made manifest in these last times for the sake of those who believe. So the apostles are frequently going to use language tying the redemptive work of Christ to a pre-temporal covenant, uh, an eternal covenant. Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now that's written about 701 B.C. And he's talking about someone who hasn't been born yet. And so he's, he's reflecting a prior choosing for someone whose work has not yet been done. And so... uh there's evidence of Christ having a work to do. Uh, I have here the covenant of redemption, which is this. That God the Father appointed the Son as mediator, promising him a people upon the fulfillment of our redemption. There is a promise from the Father that Christ will have a people. He will have a bride. And of course, the Bible ends with the consummation of that. But it is on condition of him fulfilling all the work, primarily the work of redemption, as our mediator. Listen to Isaiah 53.10. And this is in, of course, Isaiah 53 is a great chapter about the atoning work. Uh, we all like sheep had gone astray, and the Lord laid on him the iniquities of us all. By his wounds you are healed. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. So that speaks of the eternal purpose of the Father for the atoning work of the Son with the promise to the Son that he will have an offspring. He will have a people. I think of uh, Jesus in uh, John 17. And this, the Gospel of John frequently has Jesus uh, talking in this way. And of course, this is the beginning of the high priestly prayer. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And so here's Jesus. By the way, the, the number one preacher of election and predestination of the Bible is not Paul, it's Jesus. Hands down. Nobody talks about it more than Jesus. And here is Jesus as he's, as he's about to accomplish that centerpiece work. He'll be arrested that night. 
And he prays that the Father would glorify him. He's referring to the cross, by the way. Glorify him in his mediatorial office since God gave him a people so that he would give them eternal life. And then he says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And so God the Son was incarnate into this world. He came into this world with a conscious awareness of, of a specific work that he was to do, namely our redemption through his blood. And this all relates to the covenant of redemption. Well, the confession speaks of God then appointing Christ as mediator. And of course, this presupposes the fall. This is eternity past. Before the creation of the world, Adam and Eve haven't existed yet. And yet, it is the will of God for Christ to be a mediator, which presupposes that, that, that God had decreed the fall. This is Robert Shaw. The fall means that God was dishonored and highly offended. Man was alienated from God and subjected to his judicial displeasure. And as man was unable to satisfy the claims of the divine law which he had violated... If he was to be restored to the favor of his offended sovereign, the interposition of another person was requisite to atone for his guilt and lay the foundation of peace. And so in the eternal plan of God, this is why, by the way, Peter in Acts 2, and the apostles just kind of casually talk this way, but they talk this way all the time. You, by the hands of wicked men, put him to death, whom God had foreordained that this would happen. And so this presupposes, and that means that the fall is the will of the Father. Now, it's a, you go, oh no, it's against the will. That's why Calvin, I think very helpfully, just reflecting on Scripture, says we need to speak of the revealed will of God, what God says he wants us to do in his word, versus the decreed will of God. It was against the revealed will of God for Adam to fall, but God had decreed this. Why? So that he, so that we would be saved by grace through Christ. Now, the writer of Hebrews makes a lot of this. And this came to my mind because I was at Rafiki teaching the book of Hebrews last week. And uh, the writer of Hebrews is going to contrast Christ in his priesthood with the Levitical priests under the law. One of the points he makes is that they became priests by descent. If you're in the line of Aaron, you're a male, you're a priest. But he makes the point that Jesus, and this is talking about the order of Melchizedek, a whole other story, but he means a higher, more ancient priesthood, an eternal one. Christ did not become that by descent, but rather by a specific appointment by God the Father. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. That's this quote from Psalm 110. And he makes the point, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, let me just do a little preaching here. Uh, what this means is that when you trust Jesus Christ, the reason why his blood stands for your forgiveness is because God established him to accomplish that work. Why his blood? Well, in part, because he is the son of God. As God the Son, incarnate as a man, his atoning death is efficacious for the forgiveness of all who believe. But the Bible also argues 
That, but, but no, God, because God, in the economy of his covenants, God appointed him to fulfill this work. And therefore, when you trust in Jesus, people say, why must I be saved by Jesus? Because he only appointed one person to do this work. He appointed his son to do this work. And when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are able to say, Father, I have committed myself into the care of him whom you appointed to redeem all those who believe in him. And so the New Testament's going to make a big deal. And this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The, the guarantor there... Uh, other translations say the surety. Um, it, it's 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 a uh, his. What, he, what he's saying is Jesus' presence in heaven forever. So long as Jesus is there, your forgiveness is certain. And he goes on to say in that great verse, Hebrews seven twenty five. Therefore, he is able to say to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through him, because he ever lives to make intercession for them. And so when, when Jesus is praying for you, and you know that he is, by the way, Jesus is interceding for us and for you. He's interceding for my presentation tonight. He is, he is interceding for us. He is doing so as the one appointed before the Father to make that intercession. And so by the Father's own decreed will, his covenant arrangement, not only does he want to, not only is he inclined to, he must receive that intercession. And Jesus is the surety, the guarantor of your salvation. It's his great stuff. And so the divines are really reflecting scripture when they point out how important it is that, what, what if somebody else had died? Well, we go, we're going to go, well, they had their own sins and they're, they're not the Son of God. But the number one answer is they were not appointed by God the Father eternally to do that. And Jesus Christ was. So, uh, now, as mediator, he was appointed by the Father as prophet to reveal God and his will. Uh, not only does Jesus sum up the Old Testament. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, it's like all the ethical teaching of the Bible receiving its true spiritual interpretation. So it's, it's not like, okay, so we need the red, the red letter version of the Bible and things in red are more authoritative. I don't have a red letter version. If I did, the whole Bible would be red. Every word of the Bible is the word of Jesus Christ. So it's not saying that. But it's saying that there is a momentum going to him. And he comes as the final word. The book of Hebrews begins at many times and in various different ways. God spoke by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so there's a culminative revelation of God in his son. I'd like to put it this way. The Bible is not saying that Jesus is like God. The Bible is saying that God is like Jesus. So when you look at Jesus and you hear his word, when from the pages of scripture, you get a sense of the compassion of his heart, his readiness to save sinners, his hatred of sin and religious hypocrisy. That is what God is like. Whoever has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. And so he is the final prophet who reveals God and his will and his salvation. He is the priest. God, uh, to be mediator required him to be the priest. Namely, that he would make in his own blood that one sacrifice that would deliver us from the guilt of our sins. God appointed him to be king, to reign in and over us forever. 
By the way, how does Christ reign as king? The answer is by his word. The way that we know that we are serving Jesus is when we are obeying his word. The royal decree of King Jesus is found in his word. And God has appointed him to be our king. Now, I have to say, I'm the kind of guy who loves medieval night movies. Raise your hand. If you, and girls, feel free. If, ladies, you can too. But you don't have to. I know you're not going to. But who likes medieval night movies? Come on. Don't you love the scene where the young knight comes to the king and he lays his sword at his feet? Or are for you Tolkien fans, where's Mel? When little, which Pippin, it's the, I haven't seen it in a while, Pippin the Hobbit goes to the steward of Gondor and he holds his little sword and the, and the steward takes his hand and he swears an oath. You've done that to Jesus Christ. And there's a dignity to our lives. And I'm to be his servant. And, and, and we should, we, we, this is why I strongly emphasize, we should be thinking about Jesus in the present tense. That we are, we are the knights of his round tables. I don't mean that in a melodramatic sense. But I think it may be helpful. We are his disciples. We are his messengers. We are his servants and his people, as, as long as we're being faithful to his word. And, and, and what a thing it is to serve him. He is our king. He's the head and savior of the church. Now, part of that head language is representative headship. And so when the confession, picking up on so much biblical language, says that Christ is the head of the church, Part of what that means is that what he does determines what blessings we get. Uh, we were in Adam, and Adam was under the covenant of works. How did that go? Poorly. And Adam sinned, and so we all died. We all died because Adam sinned. Ah, but Christ is the second Adam. He is the new man. In the, in, in, I think 1 Corinthians particularly uses that language. And now, I think I mentioned last week that William Perkins made the comment that we were hanging from the belt of Adam, but when we're converted, we're taken off, in terms of headship, we're taken off the belt of Adam and we're placed onto the belt of Christ. And if only he will accomplish the work given him by the Father, then we will receive eternal life, and he has. We are there the heirs with him of all things. Christ is appointed by the Father. Now, one of the things being emphasized, this isn't all just stuff that happens kind of automatically because of his divine nature. Now, these are appointments from the Father that he will be the heir of all things. And so to be in Christ is to be, what is, what is Romans eight seventeen says, if, if in Christ we are children of God, heirs, co-heirs with Christ of all things. And he is the judge of the world. This Jesus... This Jesus, in whom it is either through faith in him that we receive eternal life or under the covenant of grace or through unbelief in him, we merit eternal death. He is the one who will sit in judgment on the last day. God the Father has appointed his son to be mediator. Now, one of the things going on with this, I've alluded to it, but the confession makes it explicit is that part of this, in appointing him to be mediator, was that God the Father gave a people to him. From all eternity, he gave a people to be his seed, his offspring. And I quote, that's not, that is not Isaiah 53.10. I'm referenced, I, I earlier mentioned uh, Isaiah 53.10. He shall see his offspring. 
I think of that great line. I can only put so many verses up here before I get so busy and Nate chastises me for slide busyness, which I probably deserve already, but I've been worse. Um, that great line in Hebrews 2 where Jesus says, here I am and the children God has given me. You ever think about that? Jesus, and by the way, notice that this whole way of thinking about our salvation, notice that it's not primarily about us. Oh, we're going to get to the chapter on faith and on repentance. We're, we, we must believe. We must repent. But, but he saves us. God appointed him to save us. The Father gave us to him. It depended on what he did. He has done it. And, and, and so on and so forth it is. God gave a people to be his seed. Now that means, this brings you back to John 1.12. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, the right to be called the children of God. And so through faith in Jesus, you are his seed. You are the people given to him by the Father from eternity past. You, are, you were not given to him because you believed. In fact, you believe because you were given to him. Now, you can only know that by believing, but when you believe, you go, that's pretty awesome. I believe in the Lord Jesus. By the way, you know that many people don't. And it's a supernatural work. But when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that means that God the Father gave you to him in eternity past. And then we are to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Now that's kind of a standard Westminsterian reformed understanding of salvation. We were redeemed by Christ. We were called effectually when the gospel was proclaimed to us and we believed. As a result of faith, we were justified. We are being sanctified and we are going to be glorified. Now notice here that the elect are a definite people chose in eternity for the possession of God's Son. And, and that's why Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him to be, hold it, what's that in him? We were not predestined in some abstract sense. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Uh, and so our election is in Christ. The Father gave us to him. Now, now listen to some of the language that Jesus used. Now I'm, I'm reading from John 6. Uh, Dr. Boyce, my mentor, preached a sermon on from the heart of John 6 titled Christ the Calvinist. And he got all these abusive email letters. This was pre-email. Oh, now he'd been, you know. How dare you call Christ a Calvinist? Well, his pointing is that it's a concentrated expose of the Reformed doctrine of salvation. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And so there are a people who were given to the Son by the Father. And guess what? How do we know who they are? Because they come to him. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, there you have both halves of it. You have the divine sovereignty and the human responsibility in response. But it is those whom he gave who therefore believe. Listen to Jesus in John 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. He has his own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I love this next statement. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. That means non-Jews. So here's Jesus, 31, 32 AD, I don't know, something like that. And he's envisioning a people from all over the world. He's envisioning you and me. 
And he's saying, oh, you know, there's, there's that Christian and that Christian. And they belong to me. And I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And so God appointed his son to be mediator. And then he appointed this people, the elect, the true and invisible church. And he gave them to them. Now, this is my last statement, actually, before I, if I go further, I got to start paragraph two. And that, that, I don't have time to do that. So we'll pick up on there next time. The certainty then of the elect being saved. Or you say the same thing, the certainty of believers being saved. Because the elect are believers. They're not believers, they're not elect because they are believers. But they are revealed as elect through true and saving faith. And notice that it's all God's ordination. It's God's appointment. It's the will of the Father, the gift of the Father to the Son. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved because the Father gave you to his Son to share in his glory from all eternity past. Isn't that great? So when Alma Palmer departed from this world and entered into glory, you know, sometimes as pastor, people say to me, pastor, what's it going to be like? And I'm kind of like, uh, you know, I actually haven't done it yet. Uh, I know what the Bible says, but I think you're going to know before I do. Um, and I often will say, tell the Lord we love him. You're going to see him soon. But when, when they passed up into glory, they, it's just the full manifestation of what has been eternally true of them. It was God's work for the sake of his son and for his own glory and out of love for us. Notice, nowhere is this salvation presented as God ordained a possibility. This is Arminianism. God ordained a possibility, an opportunity. Uh, No, God did not ordain a, I suppose in one sense that's true, but that's not the way the Bible presents it. God gave a people to his son. He sent his son to be the mediator. He appointed him to the office of mediator and all the associated offices, and he accomplished the work that he gave him to do. It is a a, a certainty for those who believe. Now, this ought to, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, this ought to be a source of great assurance because we see that our struggles of faith, our acts of faith, our lives of faith take place in this grand eternal scheme between the Father and the Son. If you're going to build a skyscraper really tall that stretches into eternity, you're going to dig it really deep. When I was in Philadelphia, they were building what is now the tallest and ugliest skyscraper in the city. They actually built a skyscraper to look like a USB drive. First time I, I, I moved away and I came back, I'm like, it kind of looks like a USB drive. It's intended to. You, whatever. But I, for like three years, they were digging into the ground because they were going to build so high. And God intends a, a saving work that will last forever. And he, 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 and he grounded it in eternity past. Our salvation in Christ through faith is based upon the sovereign will of God. And let me just close with this. This is Jesus. Let's just listen to how he puts it. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now notice they go together. It's the same persons, those who were given by the Father to the Son, and those who look on the Son and believe. And I do want to say this pastorally. 
we, there are, there's a biblical teaching about what is true faith and what is not true faith. They're just professing faith does not meet this. But, but having said that, it's, it's simply that. It's not your good works. It's not your service. It's not, it's not your, your sanctification. It doesn't do this. If you look to the Son and believe in him, then this is you. And God, the reason that, it, what a stupendous thing it is, simply to look to the Son, the Son of God, and believe in him, that is something that only happens when it was ordained in eternity past by the Father. And that person's salvation is eternally sure in the future. And I will raise him up on the last day. Well, it's a really great paragraph. So we'll look next week at the uh, uh, second paragraph and forward. If, if not, I think I'm here next week, but let's pray together. Father, we want to glorify you and your son. For these are high and great things, but Lord, we can understand them. And Father, we are just stripped of all our humanism, our whole way of thinking that says, oh, it's our will, it's our free will, it's our sovereignty that matters. Lord, how we thank you that that is not true. It is your free will. It is your sovereignty. And you have, a, you have given us to your Son. And, and, and help us even to think of our lives that way, the dignity and the purpose it, and, and the excitement it gives, that we would look to him and believe and he would redeem us and he would raise us up on the last day and that we are heirs with him who is the heir of all things. Oh, we glorify you in the name of your Son and we thank you for this faith, which is your gift to those who belong to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.